Hello and welcome to our podcast, Shut the Fuck Up, We Are Not Done Talking Yet, with Sharla Gabert and Danielle Warriman. I'm Sharla. And I'm Danielle. In our podcast, we discuss current events, popular culture, writing, books, movies, and women's lives. We are smart, funny, and occasionally profane. We hope you enjoy our podcast and thanks for listening. Right. Here we have another past podcast coming down the chute. And today we are interviewing a dear person to us, Marilyn Bosquin, who runs a, her own business called Writing Women's Lives Academy. Charlotte and I are students of hers and we work with her online, uh, creating memoir shorts and uh, doing that work and telling our truth. Welcome, Marilyn. Oh, it's so good to be here. Thank you for having me. Really excited to be with you two awesome women. I love your podcast and what you're doing and feel just, I don't know, so honored to be a guest here. Thank you. Well, it's really appropriate that you're a guest because I think really you and your writing class have inspired us to take um, our not silencing our speaking even further and do a podcast. So I don't think we probably would have done a podcast if we hadn't been working with you and getting more comfortable with sharing our truths. Oh, I'm really glad to hear that. And um, I guess I'll say for the listeners that at at Writing Women's Lives Academy, um, I like to say that it's um, for women who are done with silence. And... um, that uh, one of the things, the one of the ways I like to put it is that I, I help women to free their voice, claim their truth, and write their memoir stories or their true stories with confidence, craft, and consciousness. And um, for women who are done with silence. So it's so awesome that you two are not only doing that in writing, your own writing, and writing your own beautiful stories and claiming those um, in your authentic voices, but that you are also now taking your voices to a whole new medium of podcasts. Awesome. Yeah. How, how long have you been doing these classes, Marilyn? At Writing Women's Lives? Yes. Um, I started Writing Women's Lives Academy um, in 2011. Um, I actually started it in 2011 because I had finished getting an MFA in 2011 and then I started Writing Women's Lives Academy like the behind the scenes and then actually taught my first class locally here um, where I live in central Virginia in the spring of 2012 while I was teaching at um, a local college at the same time. Well, could you tell us a little bit about your philosophy in teaching women's writing? Oh, sure. Yes. Um, it really comes down to, uh, It springs from voice and um, the importance of voice for women writers. Um, And I really can't separate it from my own story, you know, my own voice story, because it's through my own experience um, reclaiming my voice that I came to my own understanding of, how the pro- how writing can be a way for us 
to recover our voices from silence. So um, maybe this would be a good time to back up and tell you how I came to into, you know, how I came into writing. Um, because it was through so much of my own voice, my quest to find my voice. Um, so I was, and you, you two may have heard me tell this first part of this story before. Um, I sometimes tell it in my classes. But, um, you know, back when I was in undergraduate school in the 1980s, I was in a creative writing class with a professor who was, a, he's a really renowned um, novelist now, but at the time he was mostly a short story writer. And, um, and I know I, I know I've told this to your class because I can hear Charla asking the question in the class. But, um, That's right. I think I must have said, hey, what was his name? But we don't have to reveal that on this particular <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I can tell you a funny story about that in just a second. But um, he, um, he had us, um, you know, we workshopped uh, like the, you know, the, the creative writing workshops and the, the traditional, someone would bring a, a story to class and they would bring copies for the whole class and read their story aloud. Um, and then others would comment on it and they will have read it before they came to class. So I um, brought this story, um, at the time it was, you know, we were only writing fiction. I had not heard anything at that point in time about creative nonfiction or memoir. Um, and I wrote a story, a fictional story, which was very autobiographical, although I would not ever have admitted that at the time, about a young woman who had anorexia. And I'm not even sure that anything was going on in the story, except that um, through writing, I was exploring this character's, you know, the protagonist's anorexia. So the, the students, my fellow students commented on the story. And um, one of the things about writing workshops, at least then, and uh, was that the person being workshopped doesn't speak, doesn't respond to what other students are saying about their writing. So um, the students were commenting and I was feeling quite um, proud because it appeared that they really liked my story. And this one young man said um, he was he was so enraptured by uh, the or engaged by the characters throwing up in the kitchen sink, in uh, her mother's kitchen sink, that he was like, you know, you wrote that so real. Like, have you had that experience? How else could you write that? And because we weren't allowed to say anything, that worked so in my favor, because I would have been way too horrified to answer that question, right? But, um, you know, I, I sat there feeling quite proud of myself, and I thought, wow, maybe I really can be a writer. You know, maybe I really do have something to, you know, something... I wouldn't have thought in terms then as something to say, but maybe I can do this because I loved writing. I was just starting to fall in love with writing. And so then my professor uh, held up my story and he kind of, uh, you know, waved it at the front of the class and he said to the class, and we were like, what, you know, 19 or 20 years old. He said, um, I don't hear a voice. Do you all hear a voice? And no one in the class, of course, said a word because I don't think anyone knew what the hell he was talking about, you know. And he said, um, you can have all the energy of Tolstoy, but if you don't have a voice, you're not a writer. And he tossed my story down the table that he was sitting on. 
So I was, of course, you know, I, I was mortified. I mean, I could feel my myself burning red. And I, I didn't have a clue what he meant by voice. But all I knew was that what he was saying was a really bad thing. And it, it was... It was like he knew more about me than I knew about me. And of course, you know, I was young and he was the professor and it was the 1980s, you know, we had zero understanding the late, you know, at least in that classroom about um, women and voice. So, um, at the, and at that same time in my life, uh, something else was going on in my life. And, and I, I, I don't tell this part of the story often, though I'm starting to, because it's a, it's a, you know, a big part of my memoir, and it's been the hardest part of the story to tell. But at that same time in my life, I was, that was the aftermath of a date rape. And we didn't have the word date rape at the time. I didn't think of it in terms of rape at the time. You know, I can now look back and see how in patriarchal culture, um, we are all conditioned to, um, not hold men accountable for their actions and for women to blame ourselves for situations that went however they went. And because drinking was involved and I had been drinking, um, I, you know, really did blame myself for it. Um, but that experience resulted in, and that experience I was handling, you know, pretty well in the way that um, denial helps you handle things, you know, at the time. <laughs> um, and but what happened was that uh, the, the rape left me with the human papillomavirus. And my doctor told my mother that he was treating me for that virus. And it was that which I now understand was the secondary trauma. My mother um, was a nurse and a public health nurse. And she came at me with her red medical book. And I don't remember anything she read from that book. I do remember her words, the things she said to me that were just vicious and cruel in her, you know, in her as a mother, probably she was terrified and horrified and scared and it kicked up all of, you know, whatever conditioning she was walking around with. But I have a, um, some of her words were like, um, uh, you know, I've seen them as big as cauliflowers and because she was a public health nurse and your babies will be born blind and um, um, how um, I don't even know who you are anymore. And frankly, I don't care to know. And the last thing she said to me, which really uh, it all imprinted itself, but it was the words, um, what other venereal diseases do you have? Oh, and gosh. This, this was the, the mid-1980s. So if you can put yourself back there, what was just on the horizon? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And so about a month after or so after this exchange with my mother, um, I find myself shaking as I'm telling this story uh, on the recording. <laughs> um, I've written it, but I don't often tell it. Um, after this exchange with my mother, I um, saw a 60 Minutes program uh, about um, the, how AIDS is transmitted by tattoo needles, or can be. And the person who raped me had tattoos. 
And so uh, I just remember the, the words in my mind, you know, my mother's words. And I convinced myself that I had AIDS. I was like, there was, in my mind, it was, it was almost like, you know, I was raised Catholic and there was just something about, um, this is, you know, this is my punishment and this is what I get. And like, you know, my mother said those words so that I would come to this conclusion, you know, so that I would, but it wasn't even like a conclusion. Like I actually believed it. And that's where it became, I understand now a secondary trauma because I was thinking that I was going to, you know, not only die this shameful death, but bring shame upon my family. This was all going on at the same time that this teacher said, you know, I don't hear a voice. Do you hear a voice? So when I left college a short bit later, I mean, I was, I, I'm kind of amazed at myself now that I could hold it together so well that no one knew what was really unraveling beneath the surface. That I was um, uh, really looking back now, again, in hindsight, and in having done a lot of healing and had a lot of help, um, I can look back and see that it was PTSD I was starting to experience um, with the fear of dying. Yeah. Um, um, so I went out, I, I left college really with this conviction that I didn't have a voice, so I wasn't a writer. But the, my writing was the really one place where I found solace. You know, it was the one place I could go and feel grounded and returned to myself and not so alone with this secret that I was keeping. And man, I could keep a secret. <laughs> um, and I, um, you know, I want to just pause to, to just read you the uh, epitaph from the epigraph from the beginning of my memoir. Um, that is from Marita Golden's Don't Play in the Sun. Um, it's her memoir about, um, it, the, the subtitle is One Woman's Journey Through the, Com the Color Complex. But um, I want to share this um, quote from you because uh, those words, don't play in the sun, were words that her mother said to her. Uh, mm -hmm. And those words became the title of her book. Um, as she was forming, you know, words her mother said to her as she was forming her identity as a black female. She writes, why do we remember the words of our mother more than any other? Why does a mother's assessment of her daughter resonate in the chambers of that daughter's heart like the Ten Commandments, like the laws of gravity, like a destiny that you simply cannot escape? And when I read these words, you know, decades later, I, um, uh, you know, have had a different experience, of course. I'm white, I'm not African-American, but the, those words about the mother's words really resonated with me. Um, and so, so the, the story, so those, those, that time in my life, I was heading out into the world, that time when most people as young adults are starting to, you know, try on the different things they're gonna do with their life, you know, who am I? What am I doing? All of that. I had it all with that. The, the background was I had five years. You know, I was reading everything I could about AIDS, which wasn't much, but I had like these five years. And, um, and I was also convinced that my mother hated me, which was devastating to me. Dev just devastating. And we went forward in our relationship uh, on a, I really, um, at that point, 
again, with hindsight, and this is the beauty of writing memoir, you begin, you make sense of your experience, right? You have that gift of hindsight to make sense of the experience you went through and you didn't have an understanding of it at the time. So at the time, I didn't understand that up until then, I'd erected a false self, a false self. but I still had a sense of self. You know, I, I still had a solid sense of self, and yes, much of it was false. Um, and I won't go into the details of all of that, but the, like the backstory of my memoir. But, um, you know, I still kind of, it, it was, that was okay. I was doing okay with my false sense of self. But mm -hmm. once, um, once my mother, uh, that scene with the red medical book happened, on some level, although again, I didn't know it at the time, on some level, the gig was up with the false self. You know, that false self was no longer going to win me my mother's love. Uh, you know what, there was, I, I, there was nothing to do but become my true self. It was the only way out. So that's, the, that's how I went out into the world, you know. And um, I was, at that point, I was not telling anyone that I wanted to be a writer because, of course, I thought that I wasn't. So, but I kept writing. And it was through writing that I began to really start to develop a sense of myself. But I really wanted to know what a voice was and what it meant to have a voice in writing. So I started to, um, at this particular time, the late 80s, um, the women's studies was new to me. I mean, my, my college didn't have a women's studies department at that particular time. Um, and and my, um, the person, Steve, who I'm married to now, who, was, um, who I was dating then, and we got married in the early 90s, but he and I, we both loved to read, and we would go on Saturdays to Borders Books and um, we, I, found, I discovered the women's studies section and I would plop down in that section and I would, started to read about women's history, women's literature, and women's psychological development. And it was, it, was that, it was then that I began to put together that women's voice, for women, voice had to do with how we're conditioned and, um, uh, uh, um, uh, Carol Gilligan had a book called, had a book at that time, a study she did on adolescent girl, uh, girls, adolescent girls and boys, and how just as our bodies start to develop as adolescents, we begin to lose our voice, which is, I, you know, now I would say we begin to lose our connection to our, to our true self. And the other piece of that is that we are raised in a culture that shames women's bodies and we internalize that shame. And so shame, of course, is the most toxic emotion and it disconnects you from your sense of self. So that's where I really started to get the foundation for what would, you know, almost two decades later become Writing Women's Lives Academy. It was really back then when I started thinking in terms of um, voice before I started thinking in terms of craft. And I would go on to learn the craft of writing, but um, I took in my mid-20s a course um, by a woman named Gail Ranadivi. And in fact, you'll hear more about her later when I read uh, the piece um, for you um, that we talked about. 
but she taught a course called Writing Recreatively, a spiritual quest for women at Georgetown University. And I lived, Steve and I lived just outside of DC at the time. It was an extended studies course. And so I went and took this course and in a circle of women, um, the workshop was set up very differently. We wrote, we shared our writing, we didn't comment, we just listened for each other's stories. And in doing that, I started to hear other women's voices. I started to really get that a voice is a lot more than the um, audible thing that we hear. It's this essence that fills the writing with that person's unique signature, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so that is, I guess, you know, that's, that's the background to me as a writer and also uh, my founding Writing Women's Lives Academy. Because when I did eventually um, make my peace with the fact, you know, when I did, I shouldn't say make my peace with, when I did eventually decide I'm going to claim the fact that I'm a writer. I've been writing for all this time, pretending not to be a writer, back and forth, you know. Um, I did go back and get my MFA, but it, it was really important to me that I not have workshops, lead workshops like the one that I had been in as an undergraduate, that I had, um, that I did workshops in which there was the safety and um, encouragement and a deeper knowing that everyone has a voice, but that voices can go into hiding. And that when we set up, so I set up my classes, of course, so that um, first and foremost, it's a space that will invite, because our voices, the stories that we are walking around with, they are chomping at the bit to hit the page. You know, they, we are, human beings are wired to heal. Yes, wired we are. And so, and writing is such a, um, a tailor-made medium for our voices because the writing, once we start writing, because our stories want to be told and our truths want to be told, the writing itself will pull the truth to the page if we feel safe enough. You know? Right. And that's one thing that you provide in your classes so well is that um, we're in this safe place in a safe container and then we are able to write very fluidly. You say, oh, here, write for 20 minutes about, you know, with the prompt. And then I, my hand is moving, 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 and I feel so safe and I am willing to read to the other class members who, frankly, beside Charla, I don't know, and they're all over the country and in Canada, whatever, and I'm reading to these strangers, and it's amazing how safe we feel. Um, that's really important and you are amazing at providing that and then you're let's let's take a little break because i want to come back and ask ask a couple questions um marilyn so we're just going to take a little break sure with marilyn bosquin and charlotte's going to ask you a couple questions marilyn Marilyn, one of the questions I wanted to ask you had to do with your training as a writing teacher at Amherst Writers and Artists. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about that? I really have no idea what that is and if it's a certain technique. Amherst Writers and Artists uh, is in Amherst, Massachusetts, and it was founded by Pat Schneider. Um, and I came to the Amherst Writers and Artists 
in 2005. And at that time, um, we had moved, um, my husband Steve and I and our son, from Boston to Virginia. And I was in the process in Virginia. I had started a writing group. I had joined a writer's group here and, and was really looking for more writing stuff. And we were in the local Barnes and Noble, which we had this like joke because we had been in Boston. We'd been in the DC area with major bookstores that we loved. And we came to Central Virginia, we had a Barnes and Noble and it was really kind of like going to the, de the book desert, you know, <laughs> but we, were, we still went, you know, and there was this one um, Sunday we were there and I pulled this book called Writing Alone, and with others by Pat Schneider off of the shelf. It was in the writing section. And I started reading the back cover that talked about how she's helped writers find their voice and liberate their voice. And then I read about the things, the thing, the ways she was taking her writing circles into, um, uh, she was using it as a form of social, social justice as well. Like take, everyone has a voice and she was, um, from that um, mindset that everyone can be a writer, you know, that everyone has a voice, everyone has a story to tell. Everybody's got a story. Mm -hmm. Yes, and she, um, so I read this book and it, it blew my heart, mind, everything wide open. It was kind of like a, a recurring of when I found that first circle of writing with Gail Ranadivi. Um, so I went and studied with Pat Schneider and became a um, certified Amherst Writers and Artists uh, group writing uh, facilitator, I believe we called it at the time. Um, but the way she set it up, she said that um, her experience when she first started teaching writing was that people were really scared and she was doing it, I believe, with a partner. Um, she too had come out of writing workshops and gotten an MFA and she was fine. She and her partner were finding that sometimes the writing from um, exercises when if people were scared, the, the writing was coming out stilted and they were having a hard time like, wow, what are we gonna respond to this, you know? And so they, she started just this technique of, you know, writing together and then sharing the writing. And um, she has different guidelines for responding, some of which overlap very much with what I teach in my classes at Writing Women's Lives, which is, um, you know, you, th this is hot off the press writing. So you're looking for the things in it that are like the warm spots, the hot spots, the places where the voice has risen to the surface. And you, you offer a comment back to the writer on that. Um, uh, so I, you know, I loved the um, the way she taught writing and what I was seeing happening in the the training that I went to, the, where I was seeing other people's hearing other people's writing and seeing people respond and my own writing like really blossoming on the page um, through this method of writing um, together. But then that's why she calls it writing alone and with others. Because, you know, of course, like our membership program, the Writing Out Loud Sisterhood membership program, how, you know, when we get together for our virtual writing retreats and I don't bring prompts, we're writing alone, we're doing our own writing, but we're together. And there's a, that, that being together and connected while we're writing 
is a magic. It is that invisible, you know, I think of it as the invisible realm where we are all connected when we remember that we're connected to ourselves and to each other. Um, and when we can tap into the group energy and go right on our own. Um, amazing. Yeah. It's very helpful and really cool. We, we love that you've made that, um, that, that program for us. It's like, it's like the difference between doing yoga in your living room versus going to a yoga class. Right? Love, it. love it. That's such a great yeah, way. But there's a different energy in the class than there is in your living room by yourself. Yep. Yep. Okay, Marilyn. Well, I think what we'd like to do now is close with a reading from okay. you of your writing. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so I'm going to read a, a short piece that um, is collected in an anthology and the anthology is titled The Mentor That Matters and the subtitle is Inspiration from Transformative Teachers, Role Models, and Heroes. And in this piece, which um, I titled Feral, F-E-R-A-L, it's um, about that writing teacher, Gail Ranadivi, who I mentioned in the beginning of our talk together. She's the one who um, had that group writing me creatively. And it'll, well, I'll just read it for you. Farrell. In the fall of 1992, when I was 26 and wrenched from sleep night after night by irrepressible sobs, I enrolled in a writing course called Writing Recreatively, A Spiritual Quest for Women. It was my habit then to write in composition notebooks while seated at an old pie hutch that still smelled faintly of flour. I'd graduated from college in 1988 with an English degree and a conviction that I did not have a voice and therefore was not a real writer. This was before Anita Hill awakened the culture to the term sexual harassment, before I'd ever heard the term date rape before my college had a single women's studies course, much less a women's studies program. Such landmark studies as Carol Gilligan's In a Different Voice, which drew attention to girls' loss of voice at adolescence, had not made it into the classrooms where I was learning to write. In one of those classrooms, a professor who wore tweed jackets taught creative writing. An acclaimed short story writer, he talked about Hemingway and Chekhov, and Tolstoy. And once I remember he ranted because a student did not know the word feral. After class, I made a beeline for the dictionary. The definition read, having reverted to the wild state as from domestication, a pack of feral dogs roaming the woods. I could not fathom feral. What conditions might precede such a reversion? Was feral a regression then, a falling from grace? Or might feral be closer to a return, a reawakening to a truth always known but long forgotten? Afraid of being singled out in class and self-conscious about what I deemed my rudimentary vocabulary, I recited the dictionary definition aloud to myself over and over. No matter how hard I pressed that definition into my mind, it would not stick. I kept forgetting what feral meant, as if its definition were a foreign substance my mind could not or would not assimilate. I was unaware then that true meaning cannot be imposed on the mind, that nuanced understanding arrives through the body and registers, sometimes with a shudder, deep in the chest. 
One of the stories I wrote for Professor Tweed's class was about an adolescent girl with anorexia. He sat at a long table at the front of the room, picked up my story, flapped its pages in the air, and said to the class, I don't hear a voice. Do you hear a voice? The class was silent. You can have all the energy of Tolstoy, he continued, but if you don't have a voice? I wish I had said something then in my defense, but I was years from knowing that a voice, like a self, can retreat into hiding and that sometimes, in order to hear it, you have to listen for the deeper story it has been conditioned not to tell, the story that so many men like Professor Tweed have been conditioned not to hear. With a flip of his wrist, he tossed my story aside. It landed on the table with a shudder. Forward to the fall of 1992, when I enrolled in Gail Ranadivi's writing class. I sat clutching my composition notebook as the circle of desks filled with women my mother's age, women who raged their way through the 60s, the decade in which I was born. A petite white woman with hands so pale they looked translucent wrote on the chalkboard, writing recreatively a spiritual quest for women, and her name, Gail Ranadivi. Her voice was soft like mine, but her tone, indomitable. We are not creating something out of nothing, she said. Rather, we will write in order to tap into what's already within us, hidden, hibernating, waiting, waiting to be reawakened and given voice. Since she, she'd created this course for women, she explained, because she noticed a pattern in her workshops. When it happened that women were the only ones in attendance, because the men were, by some fluke, all absent at the same time, the women's writing took an unexpected turn. Raw, wild, untamed, feral. Together we would write from prompts designed to help us, quote, recreate the images, symbols, and metaphors of our own lives as women, unquote. We would read our writing aloud, and though we were free to pass, she encouraged us not to. Each person has a piece of our collective story, she said. You will each hear yourself and others name what you didn't know you knew. I may have been the youngest by a generation, but I knew what she was talking about. A year earlier, in 1991, I watched Anita Hill speak her truth before a stone-faced judiciary committee, and I found myself crying silent tears as she named what I didn't know I knew. When she said in her defense that she could not explain why she hadn't spoken before now, recognition shuddered in my chest. The Judiciary Committee, almost exclusively white men, sat at a long table at the front of the chamber. One by one, they flapped the pages of Anita Hill's testimony. When one of the men tossed her testimony aside with a flip of his wrist, a fist rose in my throat. I don't hear a voice. Do you hear a voice? After her testimony, I sat at my pie hutch where untold women before me had kneaded dough and perhaps cried silent tears, and I wrote in my notebook, Anita Hill. Then I wrote, I too have been sexually harassed. Then I wrote, has every woman been sexually harassed? It would be months before the term date rape 
would bleed from my pen years and dozens of notebooks later before I would realize that the story I'd once written about a girl with anorexia carried a deeper truth that had, for a time, awakened me sobbing in the dead of night. I challenge you to name your truth, your own truth, Gail Ranadidi said. Week after week, I wrote with that circle of women. One by one, we read our words aloud. The more I came to know the nuance of each woman's voice, its longings, leaps, and shivers, the less separate our voices sounded. Not that they became one in the same, they did not. But I began to hear what I can only describe as a collective reckoning. It started low, a rumble in the chest, then shed its inhibitions as voice by voice it chorused into an unbridled howl. When writing recreatively ended, I wrote a thank you letter to Gail and my writing circle. Each of you taught me to howl, I wrote, and on the word howl, as if on cue, a pack of dogs began to howl in the distance. The howl started low, but soon harmonized into a chorus howl that registered in my chest so keenly I wondered if I myself was howling. No, it was the dogs, not me. But I understood then that I, too, was part of a pack. Anita Hill, Gail Ranadivi, the women in my writing circle, the women who'd been over this pie hutch before me, and that together we had, voice by voice, reverted to the wild state as from domestication, feral, the pie hutch shuddered. Ah, uh, nice. Love that. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, can you, you can't talk for a moment and we're going to tell you how good that was because usually the other way around. <laughs> Marilyn, that was so nice how you tied it all together. The pie hut the kneading dough, Anita Hill, the Judiciary Committee dismissing her, like so many of us have been dismissed when we tell our story. I really liked the way that you took the word feral and, which has a really negative connotation. You know, it usually implies something bad has happened and you want to restore that feral animal or there's a feral kitten. You know, that sort of thing. You made it into a, such a positive attribute. I also like the way that you took the word howl and took it, I wouldn't say you took it away from Allen Ginsberg, but I would <laughs> thought of very much his, his poem, Howl, and how howling is something the men get to do, hmm. not women. And I don't know, I just really latched on to that. That was, that was really great. I also like the way that you pointed out um, that women listening to each other read their writing hear pieces and parts of their own story mm -hmm. reflected. And when you hear it, it's sort of mirrored and then you can identify it yourself in a way that you wouldn't have noticed before, mm -hmm. which I think happens in our class with you, mm -hmm. but it's interesting it was happening in that first class that you took yeah. with. Gail Remadivi, is that how you say her name? It's Ranadivi, R-A-N-A-D-I-V-E, and she now goes by Gail Ranadivi Collins. I knew her as Gail Ranadivi, but we actually reconnected when um, this piece was published. I reached out to her and, um, no, she goes by Gail Collins Ranadivi. I'm sorry, she well, had me. Excellent, we'll, work, we'll look her up. We have yeah. um, 
You know, we have a Facebook page oh, yes, that goes with this podcast. And so that's a good place for us to put um, links to your website. Um, is this feral essay anywhere that we can link to it online? It's not. It's really, um, it, it's, you know, it's a, a, just an essay that hasn't seen much light because it's in an anthology. Well, we um, will it's not online. the anthology. We will find yeah. it on Amazon. And oh, great. It's, I will let you know who the, the publisher is. Um, it, it's edited by Suzanne Fox. She's wonderful to work with. Right. But we're also going to put your name and, and website in our notes of this podcast. So anyone listening, listening can awesome. find it right away. Yeah. Awesome. It's writingwomenslives.com. And we're also on Facebook. If anyone wants to come find us at the Writing Out Loud Sisterhood, there is a free Facebook group through Writing Women's Lives Academy called the Writing Out Loud Sisterhood. Writing Out Loud Sisterhood. Yeah, you yeah. can find it on Facebook. Right. And you fit in so, so well with our topic, our overall theme of our, um, our podcast, which like we said at the beginning of the show, we practically stole from you. So <laughs> thanks a lot. Thanks for letting <laughs> All artists stealing, right? And with our, our, you know, our profanity, shut the fuck up. Um, you know, it is what it is. We have a story to tell. And like, what was the, um, in the class we learned that some outrageous number of men versus women are published. It was the the VID account. The VID account, V I D A. Yeah, V I D A, the VID account. That was actually, I'm really glad you mentioned that, Danielle. That was one of my impetuses for starting Writing Women's Lives Academy because that first count came out right as I was finishing my MFA. And when I saw those numbers, which were astronomical differences, like 80% of the publications in the New Yorker were men to 20% women overall. Um, I, it, it really made me even more um, determined, you know, I had a, a more of a, I felt like this is, this is what I'm doing right now. You know, I'm doing Writing Women's Lives Academy and, and creating a space for women to claim their voice from silence and to write and to write our stories and our experiences. Um, but the VEDA count is a great resource. And since that first count, they, the VEDA count still pub, uh, publishes the VEDA count every year, but now they also include uh, intersectionality. So not only do we have the breakdown of uh, the ratio of men to women, but we can see within the number of women published, you know, how many, uh, the ratio of women of color, women with disabilities, um, women who don't identify as heterosexual, you know, so you, you just, that intersectionality makes really, to my mind, is like a visibility tool for silencing and how it really plays out with the various um, identities that people carry and the different oppressions that are in our culture. Okay, well, that's, that is another wonderful thing that we'll put on our Facebook page, a link to the Vita website. Yeah. Marilyn, thank you so much for being on our show. You're an inspiration to us. And um, thanks for also for being our, our writing teacher as meant is uh, changed my last few years when I've, since I've been expressing myself on paper, I wow. feel different. Uh, well, thank you so much for having me. I can't even tell you that uh, it's just a total joy to me to be here with the two of you. I kind of want to like, you know, I wish I was there and I could just hug you up in person, but thank you so much for inviting me we're here virtually all yes. together 
<laughs> yes, we are. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. One day we'll meet in person. And oh, we'll without a doubt. Enormous hugs. I can't wait. Yeah. Slobbery kisses all over. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Bye for now. Okay. Much love right. to you both. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. You can get more information about it on facebook.com backslash Sharla Danielle podcast.